I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. There is a labor movement bubbling up in our region, and the baristas at your favorite coffee shops have been at the forefront pushing it forward. We're seeing this play out at a Starbucks in Knoxville and the popular Three Brothers Coffee here in West End, as workers have devoted themselves to unionize. So what is behind this labor organizing effort? What are coffee shop employees asking for? And how could these recent moves affect the future of labor organizing in our region? Stay tuned for that discussion later this hour. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. Glad to be back. Glad it's Thursday. Glad it's Thursday as well. So, what's on our listeners' minds this week? Well, yesterday's Citizen Nashville episode on public transportation got a lot of folks talking online. Mm. Uh, quite a few of our listeners shared their ideas on how the city could improve transit as a whole. Uh, Charles F. Kasky wrote to us saying, Fewer inattentive people behind the wheel would sure help. Literally half of the drivers I see are on their phones. We've banned using handheld cell phones three years ago. Now it's time to enforce these laws. You know what? Charles, I agree. I think we should also enforce the law that you can't use the turn lane as an actual driving lane. I've seen that way too many times. Way too many times. I'm sure we'd have some listeners who agree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, but on that note, we also had quite a few people who agreed with our guest yesterday, Kathy Carrillo of Walk Bike Nashville, when she recommended that the city should lower the speed limits on roads that are shared by both drivers and cyclists. A listener who goes by, quote, ban parking bonuses on Twitter wrote to us saying, it would help to see speed limits lowered, but we also need them enforced and engineered to meet that. Just changing a sign is only the first step in the process. Um, they also reached out to us to share census data showing how around 1,800 or excuse me, 18,000 Nashville households, which is about 7%, actually don't own a vehicle. Hmm. Okay, so it's official. Nashville is a car town. Indeed. And one of our listeners who, go by, who goes by Britannia White Wolf on Twitter shared how the region's dependence on cars impacts how she's able to travel around Middle Tennessee. She wrote, I live in Goodlitzville. I have a disability, and that means driving isn't an option. I live in a rural-ish area, and we go may or may not come out here. And Uber and Lyft aren't accessible, as accessible as they could be. I also have a service dog, and I have people give me odd looks when trying to use transit. Her comments are similar to what we heard in one of our first Citizen Nashville episodes about accessibility. In that show, some of our guests who are blind or use wheelchairs said that they wanted transit services in the region to prioritize their needs. Accessibility is definitely a theme that we'll be exploring in next Monday's show about sidewalks. Also for that episode, we'd love to hear from y'all. Send in your questions and concerns about sidewalks, or really the lack of sidewalks in Nashville. And you can do this on our website. This is Nashville.org. Just fill out the form on the front page. Yes, please, please, please. We really do design our episodes around your contributions, y'all. So send them in. On that note, earlier this week, we got an interesting question from a listener. Right, Anna? Yes, I actually love it when our listeners 
send us um, little atypical questions. Okay. <laughs> so uh, during Thursday's show about uh, white supremacy in Tennessee, a Twitter user who goes by Jeans Ryan asked, quote, which state representative representatives specifically are the most sympathetic to white nationalists. Okay. Can we answer that? Uh, I mean, realistically, no, but that's really because none of our lawmakers have come out openly supporting white nationalism per se, but our state legislature really does have a complicated relationship when it comes to race. Mm -hmm. Um, Black lawmakers have gone on the record about what they say is the racial insensitivity of their white colleagues. It's a topic that the Associated Press reported on in January, and the Tennessean also did a report on it back in 2020. And members of the Tennessee House Assembly have gained some national attention in the past for some of the things that they've actually said on the floor of the Capitol. Okay, here we go. The three-fifths compromise was a direct effort to ensure that Southern states never got the population necessary to continue the practice of slavery everywhere else in the country. By limiting the number of population in the count, they specifically limited the number of representatives that would be available in the slaveholding states, and they did it for the purpose of ending slavery. Mr. Uh, Representative Towns, he's getting the secret formula to Kentucky Fried Chicken, and pretty concentrated on that. So on this bus ride out to where the orchard was at, there was a little Mexican fellow sitting up front behind the bus driver, and it seemed like everybody else on the bus was picking on him. And I said, why are they picking on that guy? And he said, well, he's a wetback. And what they said, by a wetback, he's here illegally. He's been back three times. If you want to help minorities, then quit pushing this intellectual rubbish and start supporting those diversity offices that are recruiting the best from light meat to dark meat across the across the entire spectrum. So those quotes have actually gone viral over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And just to give some context to one, the first uh, voice that you heard was actually Representative uh, Justin Lafferty from Knoxville, who incorrectly said in 2021 that the three-fifths compromise was adopted to end slavery. And then after that, we heard from Representative Mike Carter of Ottawa, who was making an off-the-cuff comment back in 2020 um, about fried chicken and his black colleague from Memphis. Wow. Just wow. And then uh, the third voice that we heard was from Jay Reedy of Aaron, Tennessee, who was using a slur uh, for Latinos during a House committee hearing in 2018 on a Sanctuary Cities bill. And the last comment was from former Goodlettsville representative Courtney Rogers, who was discussing a bill to pull funding from the University of Tennessee's diversity office back in 2016. Oh, boy. Yeah, there's there's more, but, you know, I couldn't include all of them. Yeah. The time. Um, and just to put it on the record, a few of them apologize, uh, particularly Carter and Rogers for their comments. Um, uh, but speaking about apologies, uh, I heard there's something you want to clarify, Khalil. I do. I do. Okay, so in yesterday's show, I made a kind of unfortunate joke about my cats. If y'all listen to the show, you know I talk about them a lot. I love them. But one of our sources told us about the lengths that she takes to get her cat food by riding the bus. I made a joke about letting my cats just eat the rabbits. So we got a voicemail after the show from Lane Brody. She's the CEO of Walden's Puddle. Have you ever heard of it, Anna? No, but I love that name. It's a great name. Okay, so it's pretty cool, actually. It's a wildlife rehabilitation center that serves our region. Lane pointed out that it's not safe for the cats to eat or 
the cats or the wildlife, part of me, to let them play or eat with, you know, play with wild animals. So if you do choose to let your cats roam around outside and they bring you an animal like a bird or a rabbit, Walden's puddle can actually help make sure that that animal survives. They take in all kinds of animals, even bobcats and herons. All you have to do is call them at 615-559-9453. Again, 615-559-9453 and make an appointment that you rehabilitate the animals and release them back into the wild. Ooh, I love that. Um, but Khalil, you didn't answer the question. Hmm. Do you actually let your cats eat rabbits? No, 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 no. <laughs> but my cats are indoor-outdoor. And a couple of weeks ago, Gary, my male, rolls up to the house after an outdoor adventure with a rabbit in his mouth. He brought home a present for his sisters, uh, Lisa and Sheila. It was a very, very long midnight ordeal. And when the dust settled, the rabbit had run away. I feed my cats cat food and sometimes occasional tuna. I totally get that. I have a little indoor-outdoor cat, too, who sometimes brings me unwanted surprises, but I will go into that at another time. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course. And our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey by letting us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick, and it helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to explore the unionization movement at coffee shops with labor organizers and a former barista. Do you think baristas and coffee shop employees should unionize? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The pandemic has made a lot of us look at employment differently as people have reevaluated their relationship with work. Things like working at home, livable wages, and good health care benefits have become increasingly important factors when considering taking a job or staying in one. The coffee business is no exception. This spring, employees at the popular Three Brothers Coffee on West End voted to unionize, and they aren't the only ones. My next guest says she tried to get a similar effort off the ground at Barista Parlor. Sochi Cruz Lopez, welcome to This Is No Nashville. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Really pleasure. Pleasure to have you with us. So tell me, how long did you work at Barista Parlor? Yes. Yeah, so I was at Barista Parlor for about seven years. How yeah. would you describe your time there? Did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah, I really did. It was a, you know, fun place to work out with everyone. Um, like with the coworkers, it was just a, it was a good time. So in December of last year, you began to have conversations with management about wages. Why? Yeah. So it actually started in October when we started having conversations. Well, I started having conversations with upper management about wages because this has been an ongoing topic amongst all the baristas, you know, um, in the past, um, we've had people leave. We had people work double jobs trying to sustain themselves and support themselves or work doubles. And it just didn't seem fair, you know. Were those conversations you had, were they encouraging? With the coworkers? With with management. And with management, they always seem like 
they they were telling us or telling me that hey like what whatever you want to discuss talk about like it's okay to come up to us and talk about it you know um so it seemed like they were receptive but they the conversations never went anywhere so you did begin to have other conversations who were you having those with those other conversations were with the coworkers. So what happened next? Yeah, so I started hearing about how other people at the shops were feeling a similar way and they wanted to change things and take action, you know. So I started reaching out to other people from other shops and kind of having meetings, you know, outside outside of the shop and talking about ways that we can change or ways that we can approach collectively, all of us approach upper management and change how wage has been at the shop for so long. So so in those meetings with all the different uh, locations of barista parlors and mm-hmm. your colleagues, were you all specifically talking about unionizing at that time? We had discussed to unionize for sure. Yeah, we were exploring all of our options and which option would be the best one for all of us, you know? Mm. So after a few meetings with your colleagues, something changed. Can mm-hmm. you can you tell us what happened? Yes. So um, we we like as far as the coworkers, like we were all feeling pretty encouraged, and we were really um, for this, you know. And um, somehow, you know, management found out about our meetings, our collective ideas, and everything. And I. I got fired for it. You know, they, out of nowhere, just one, like one day they, I had a call from the uh, operations manager at Barista Parlor. He calls me, he's like, hey, um, for reasons of disrespect and subordination, we're letting you go effective immediately. Now, did you have any, ever have any incidents? You get written up sometimes jobs, you know, when you there's an incident happening with an employee, there's mm-hmm. a process of writing people up. And after a great number of them, then they find that reasons to let people go. Have you ever had anything like that happen? Not in the seven years that I was there. No, I never had any disciplinary action. I used to manage one of the shops, you know, mm-hmm. so I had been there for a long time and I had a good relationship with upper management. So the allegations of me being disrespectful and insubordinate just didn't add up. So how did you feel when upper management called you and told you that? I I had a feeling that this was going to happen. You know, I when I started to get a kind of a sense that of, oh, they might know because I had been pushing for this for a while. I didn't know that they had been told, you know, but the conversations lasted for so many months that I felt like I was kind of on thin ice. So I kind of felt it coming. But in that moment, I was trying to process everything that happened and what was going to happen after that firing, you know, with everyone still at the shop. So my first, you know, response was like, oh, are they going to fire anyone else? Anyone else that were at the meetings? Uh, But I was also really mad you know, after mm. it happened. Mm. I do want to say that we reached out to Barista Parlor about today's show. They reject claims that you've made, but in a statement, they've told us, quote, unionization is an employee right and Barista Parlor respects that right. We have not and would not attempt to curtail that right. So, you know, since you've been gone, have you kept in touch with your former colleagues? And if so, what's their reaction been to all of this? Yes, yes. I'm still very good friends with a lot of them and 
you know, we talk every now and then just to catch up. And they're still upset about everything that's happening as far as wages go at the shop. They, Barista Parlor, the company, gave uh, a company-wide wage increase of a dollar to everyone like a few weeks after I was fired. Um, but that's not enough for people. You know, they're still upset. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking this hour about labor unionizing efforts within the local coffee industry. My next guests have been instrumental in the unionization of employees at Three Brothers Coffee in West End. I'd like to welcome labor organizer Anthony Fern Welsh with Universal Workers United and Paige McKay with Rock Music City, a chapter of Restaurant Opportunity Center United. Thanks to both of you for being with us today. So, Fern, let me start with you. You were a barista at Three Brothers Coffee, right? Yeah, yeah. So what was the impetus for you and your colleagues to unionize? Um... It was all about a bunch of conversations that we were having, like ongoing conversations about what is the status? Like, do we feel appreciated about our work? Um, we're talking about living wage, you know, things in Nashville going up in price. I actually worked here in 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. came back uh, at the end of 2021 and um, didn't get a raise, but like cost of living was noticeably higher. I realized I didn't come back to the same uh to the, can- to the same living standard. So I'm like, I, I can't survive off of this. Um, I'm struggling off of this. So um, beyond that, just like looking at different things that where people or looking at different instances where people felt mistreated, um, ultimately like a group of us were in agreement, like we want to see some change, not just for ourselves, but like the standard to so, change for the industry as a whole. So but, what motivated all of you to kind of step up and help out? Um realizing people don't really go, you know, they don't come to work with a peace of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, how you feel, but I know a lot of people, they get payday, you know, payday comes and then, then there's still stress. <laughs> yeah. You know, there might be even more stress on payday, just knowing like actually doing the calculations, like, oh, tips weren't that much or, uh, oh, I got hurt and I don't have insurance and we're all, you know, aging. So I'm 26 now or 27 and I'm not on my parents' insurance, you know. These things adding up over time. In those conversations, how much did people talk about the pandemic kind of opening up their their minds or their views to some of these things that they would like to even out and make better for themselves? Yeah. Um, the pandemic played a huge role. A lot of folks working at Three Brothers right now, um, you know, there's a small handful who were there before the pandemic. There's a bigger handful who came after the pandemic. Um, I worked before and after the pandemic. And... Um, it, yeah, like I, like I was saying earlier, um, I realized I didn't come back to the same work environment. Um, we, hmm, that's sorry. That's a, that's a really tough one. Um, uh, slight backstory. I, I came back from China last year. So like okay. my, my experience with the pandemic in America, like it was reintroduced when I came back to Nashville. So mm. like my personal experience is a little bit it's just viewed a little bit differently. Um, so that wasn't something I was caring, but all of the workers uh, at Three Brothers, in a major way, um, the pandemic shaped how, uh, it shapes how they're, they're viewing their work experience right now as far as, um, yeah, they, they walked through the struggle, I guess. Mm-hmm. They walked through the shop closing, shutting down, the uncertainty. 
um, you know, people having to, or owners having to file, I think, PPUs um, to get some kind of more assistance for their workers and having to go with that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I just wanted to support them through that. Like, I didn't walk with them through that part, but I wanted to support them in that. Now, Paige, you helped start Rock Music City, and you all specialize in working with the service industry. What makes labor organizing within the service industry unique? Um, yeah, I did. And in the service industry, restaurants and coffee shops were a long thought of being impossible to unionize, impossible to organize, um, because there's such high turnover rates and there's such small amounts of loyalty to different restaurants. But the loyalty comes to your coworkers. It comes um in, in most industries, in a lot of industries, you see loyalty to the actual job. But with us, I think it makes us unique that the loyalty you often have in a restaurant, especially in a place like Nashville, where the hospitality workforce is the largest labor force in the city, um, our loyalty comes to comes from our other workers. So once you build that solidarity and that community, people want to unionize not just for themselves, but for each other. And I think that's the piece that's missing from a lot of organizers' minds. Well, how are you all able to address those very specific needs within the service industry? Because we're in the service industry. Um, the people working in ROC Nashville are still working in the restaurant industry. I've been in it for almost a decade and I still actively am in restaurants. I My main job, I work you know, 30 hours at a restaurant every week. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're in it and you continue to be in it, you can only organize these things when you understand what they need personally. That, those needs change. And once you leave, it's easy to forget to no fault of anybody's. But that's why I think ROC is able to organize something that was considered unorganizable. Now, in, in my past career, so I've, I've worked at the service industry as a bartender, as a server. And I know that it's sometimes very difficult to get everybody on the same page, even to decide a time to meet. How do you all tackle that challenge? Digital organizing. Okay. Um, During the pandemic, it became the only way to organize. And that's when I became part of the organizing community. And I was trained as a digital organizer because we had COVID. There was no other way to meet. And I think that coming to people where they're at and the capacity they have, because our capacity changes every day. And in late stage capitalism, where we are right now, especially our capacity is going to change every single day as people that are working paycheck to paycheck and don't have health care and don't have child care and don't have any other means of getting help. Our capacity changes. It's never going to be the same. So constant communication, checking in with people, utilizing group chats, utilizing text messaging, utilizing Zoom, utilizing other other different apps to keep people involved, expecting people to show up in person to a meeting. That's just so, um, it's, to me, it seems a little less considerate of them because it's, it, it's just not going to work that way. You have to diversify your communication with people. Now, Soshi Cruz Lopez is still with us. Soshi, from your experience, does what Paige is saying, does that really ring true? Yes, for sure. You know, everyone's first, but going back to the community aspect, you know, it is very true that that is so much the way that it's different from coffee community or the service industry compared to other industries is so true. You know, we're all working pretty close together. So that aspect's true. And then trying to get everyone together um, working in the service industry, you know, as you know, it's hard with everyone's schedules. But the, the like the way that communication and, you know, digital 
um, and internet has made it possible. Um, it's a great thing. So yeah, I agree. It's interesting that this movement is happening at coffee shops. Mm -hmm. You know, Fern, what is it about the coffee industry that makes it a favorable kind of environment for labor organizing? Um, I'd say coffee shops, the coffee industry as a whole, like it adapts a lot. Um, you hear terms like third wave, co third wave coffee. Um, you know, there's these distinctions between like Starbucks or these uh, shops that, you know, where they have a little bit more personal touch to them. And I think a lot of the workers in coffee shops, like they hold to that and um, you give people that free reign, like how far does their expression go? It goes beyond just like, does our shop look cool? But do we also feel valued at our shop? Mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, I, I think coffee is going to take it far. It goes from like Chile here in the States, like there's a lot going on around the world within coffee industry. Do you feel that coffee shops themselves have this image of being politically progressive? They definitely do, but that, I feel like that's just like the generation, like who's growing up in it right now. Mm. Mm. Um, Explain. Uh, we're growing up in the time we're in, you know, I'm 27. So, you know, I think I work with a few people who are a little bit older than me and I work with a lot of people who are younger than me. So you've got this like, we grew up with the internet. We grew up with computers in our houses and our phones, and we understand uh, social media a little bit more. So we understand that that representation and how to you know flex that muscle a little bit more. Um, and when we're asked like, "What do you need? What do you want?" Like, it is a part of us to go to our phone and you know maybe ask a question, put it out there into the world, and see what the response is like. And that's kind of what it materialized into. Mm. Now, Soshi, what's next for you now? Next for me. Yeah. So um, I'm a student. I'm in school, you know. Um, and so doing school and just continuing to speak about what I'm doing, um, like I've said, this movement is so much greater than, than me or, you know, it's not just about barista parlor and what happened to me. It's about making sure or like making sure, but like just spreading the word that other workers have rights, especially in this state, you know, or in the South. What are you studying? I am studying neuroscience. I'm a pre-med student. Okay, so real quick, what, so as you move forward, considering what you said mm -hmm. in your medical career, mm -hmm. how are you going to use these experiences to kind of guide you in the work as you do, that you do in the future? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, still a lot of inequality, even with students, and as you if anyone out there who has been going through, like, who's gone through medical school, I haven't yet, but I have a few friends who are in medical school. Um, there's still a lot of inequality there with uh, the, not just the pay discrepancies, but in terms of workload and conditions and everything. So I will continue to advocate for all of us. That is Soshi Cruz Lopez, former employee at the Barista Parlor, who says she was fired for attempting to organize her colleagues. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about labor organizing in our region and invite a representative from the AFL-CIO to the discussion. Are you currently a member of a union? Are you fighting to organize your coworkers? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
While the push for unionization at coffee shops is a fairly recent phenomenon, labor organizing in Tennessee goes back quite some time. What has it looked like in the right to work state? And what does right to work even mean in today's environment? Labor organizers Anthony Fernwelch and Paige McKay are still with us. Fern, so let's start here. What does right to work mean exactly? Um, right to work means that workers uh, in the workplace who maybe are uncertain if they want to be a part of a union or not, they have an option not to. So, for, for example, uh, we have a union vote. Somebody votes no, they don't want a union. They still reap the benefits that the union workers you know, fought for, but also, you know, that's like the face value version of it, like at a deeper level, um, it helps provide cheap labor, like here in the South. And we've got a bunch of right to work states, this little bunch of right to work states, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, it goes on. Um, right to work protects business owners, really. Um, it mm. gives them something to use to mobilize people against each other, to pit workers against each other. Um, and it sounds nice just in the phrasing right to work, but really what it means is you have the right to, yeah, it doesn't actually have any any true benefits. <laughs> okay, so how does that impact what labor unions can do for their members? Um, it makes the fight a lot more difficult. Um, it makes the fight a lot more difficult in that when when I'm working or with especially Paige, Paige understands it. We've, we've sat in a lot of meetings where we're trying to convince new people to join in on this fight. And, you know, people are like, I don't know. I, I feel a little iffy. Um, and just that little seed drops in their head of, you know, I don't actually have to fight for this. I'm going to get the benefits anyways. Um, yeah, it, it creates a little space for people who to not be challenged really and a, a safe space for that. Okay. Paige, can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, I definitely can. I feel like with right to work, as we know, it, it like Anthony said, like it, it only benefits the owner. It gives the owner opportunity to fire anybody without cause, without explaining why they could, they could claim it was anything, but you can usually pretty well see what it is. So in a state like Tennessee, you see a lot of people getting fired for things like being trans or being gay in a lot of establishments when, and they can claim it, you showed up late two weeks ago. And it's very hard to fight because we are in a right to work state. Um, and as far as unionizing go, it goes, it does absolutely cause workers to not see the benefit of being in a union if they're going to get the benefits anyway, which we would like everyone to have the benefits regardless. We, we would hope that no one had to fight for the very, very minimal requirements we're asking of businesses when we're unionizing. I'd like to bring in my next guest. A.J. Starling is the secretary and treasurer of the Tennessee chapter of the AFL-CIO. A.J., yeah. thanks for being here. Thank you. So now the AFL-CIO has been working to protect workers' rights for nearly 70 years. In your opinion, what are the benefits of union membership? Well, it's it's a, a lot of benefits. Uh, first, uh, you have a voice on the workplace when it becomes issues of safety uh, working conditions, uh, uh, vacations, uh, salaries. We normally negotiate for those particular benefits, and it makes it, it gives the worker a voice. It feels like they're part of what they are working for. How long have you been a part of the AFL-CIO? Gee, a long time. Uh, I would say 28 years. I've been in this movement, and uh, I've loved every 28 years of it. So you've got this personal long-term perspective on this. 
tell me, what has labor organizing, what has that movement looked like in Tennessee historically? Well, it's been it's been tough. Um, we've had to struggle. Um, I do know when I first started in this movement, we had a lot of plants here in the state of Tennessee and throughout the country. And when NAFTA was passed, a lot of those companies moved, mm-hmm. uh, which vaulted our work, which brought our capacity down a lot. So it's been hard to organize in the in the service industry a lot. So talking about right to work, what kind of challenges does it prevent to do present to do this kind of organizing in a right to work state like Tennessee? It's tough, but as I listened to the to the other guests earlier, it's all about personal choices. It's all about do you want to be part of having a voice in the workplace? When we have those issues come up and people want to be recognized and be valued, it becomes an easy two. Uh, in, in Tennessee, uh, I think workers are mistreated. They're mistreated in a lot of ways. As the young lady said earlier, uh, just getting fired for no reason. Uh, we need to stop that in this day. Now, how has the pandemic kind of informed the new work that you all are doing at the AFL-CIO? How has that affected it? Well, basically, it's brought out uh, those concerns. It's brought out that voice that wasn't heard always, uh, you know, getting fired, getting sent home, not getting a paycheck when they should got. It's, it's actually created the voice that you're hearing earlier from the other guests. So, you know, speaking of the pandemic and a lot of other things in the world, we are in a great moment of change in a lot of ways. Have you all had to adapt what you do? With, to keep up with the changes in the labor force and the kind of things that workers today are looking for. Absolutely, we had. Um, the When I started in the labor movement, we did mostly mailings and uh, the phone calls and the door knockings and things like that. Now we've got internets. We've got uh, Twitter, Facebook. We've learning to adapt and reach out to people through those mediums, which has caused these increases for people to hear what the labor movement is about. And a lot of times people think it's all about money. Well, we care about people. We care about working conditions. Have you had an expressed interest or jump in interest since the pandemic? Yes, well, quite a bit. As a matter of fact, we've had several uh, organizations that have affiliated and formed uh, since the pandemic. I would say from the state level, we've had at least five. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking about the labor movement in Tennessee, where it's been, where it is, and where it's going. You know, I think many people would say that having more than one labor organization is group is a good thing for all workers. More people can receive more help and support and find the approach that fits them best. Paige, tell me, what sets Rock Music City apart in your approach to labor organization? I think that what sets us apart is that we are staying in the community and we have more of a community um, aspect to that. Not that, I mean, every other group does too, but but we specifically are in the restaurant community. And that's such, like we've talked about, such a hard group to unionize. And so I think being more specifically focused on the hospitality industry and, and actively working in those restaurants with them is what has set us apart so far. And, and I think there are other groups that are focused on you know, other groups, bigger groups, and they're in those communities. So I think that's why it's so important that we're here now, is that these groups need someone that specifically is 
is involved with them. You know, the hospitality industry has such a strong, very strong union in Nevada, but they also make up a larger percentage of the overall workforce in the entire state. What makes Tennessee different? I mean, probably, I guess simply though, there aren't as many big cities, right? Um, Hmm. So, you know, in Nashville specifically, the labor workforce, of the hospitality labor workforce has a stronghold on this entire city. And really, if you think about it, Memphis and Nashville's labor and hospitality has a has stronghold on the entire state because all of the money that the state is getting out of taxes is coming out of Nashville. And the people making that money are restaurant workers. And when restaurant workers start to realize that, that's when real change can happen. Now, AJ, do you all work with Rock Music City? Yes, we, we have a, a good relationship and, and through our state organization as well as our central labor councils. Uh, I do know the Central Labor Councils uh, work really close with uh, with these organizations. How important is it that multiple labor organizing organizations kind of have good relationships with each other within a particular region, a city, or a state? Well, I think it's always great to have great relationships. That way, you find out what particular issues that are that are necessary or important to the workers, that the individuals. And we, we look at the, the whole uh, aspect of the human aspect in a job, not just, you know, a lot of times people think that uh, we're looking at money and so forth. We're looking at working conditions. We're looking at the health issues. And we're looking at just a gamut of things. So we can, we can represent that family as well as that individual. Now, Fern, what makes Universal Workers United different? Um, Sorry, it's actually Unemployed Workers United. Unemployed Workers United. But it is universal. Um, What makes it different is it started off as Unemployed Workers United, a response um, to COVID-19. So kind of like the question you asked earlier, like about, you know, COVID and like organizing. A lot of people realized that they had no backing. They had no support. I think if unions were in place before COVID, a lot of people would have seen themselves with, you know, um, a paycheck. Mm. at least during some of COVID, they would have seen themselves with some protection. Um, But what makes Unemployed Workers United different is the fact that it is adaptive. Like it's come out of that phase of being a place, uh, it's come out of that post, not post, but that pandemic phase. And now looking at workers and their experiences um, right now, like recognizing that we are, we need to lean more into like this digital age and how do we bring people together? but yeah, I think it's adaptation. It's adaptability is probably the biggest thing. Um, the name is probably a little bit like mis, mis, misleading, but we're here to, to raise the standard for any industry, whether you're employed right now or you're not employed. Now, AJ, looking back, the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement are pretty intertwined, right? That's correct. Tell me, what's the significance for you personally? Personally, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's all in one. Uh, if I am going to have civil rights, I've got to have workers' rights as well. And to the labor movement, if you go back into the the reason why Dr. King came to Memphis, it was a labor strike. Uh-huh. And a lot of people don't always know that, but it was a labor strike. And he came to represent those individuals and support uh, their right to join a union. Now, I believe, Fern, you got inspired by parts of the civil rights movement, correct? Tell me about that. 
Um, well, I'm from Florida, but coming to Nashville the first time around, just learning about the city's history, learning about the sit-ins that were taking place down downtown. Um, you you can go check them out at the downtown library. They've got this civil rights room. And if you go into that room, they've got a bunch of books, they've got pictures, they're pointing at all these different figures, but they also have some documentaries where they like talk about the anatomy of a protest and the preparation that goes into organizing. And not just like the, here are the facts, but here's like where we need to be mentally um, as we're facing, you know, the people against us, the people who are the union busters, what have you. Um, and yeah, and like like AJ was saying, um, people don't realize that um, those things are intertwined, like the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement. But it is, it is, yeah, fighting capitalism here. Mm-hmm. Now, AJ, you're a longtime union member, and you've seen a lot of change over the years. As we move into the future, where all of us are looking for employment, and then at we're looking at employment and the nature of work differently. You know, what should we keep in mind? Well, number one, we should always keep in mind that we're dealing with human beings and we're dealing with their families along with it. And that's why they work. They work to support themselves as well as their family. Do we need to tweak on how we need to reach and reach out to people? Absolutely. Uh, Technology is changing every single day. It's changed probably today than it was yesterday. So we, we are going to have to learn to use those instruments and use that technology to advance our cause to represent our people. How do we do that when people look at unionization as a political situation, as a political divide and whatnot? How do we, how do we approach the humanity in this? Well, number one, with the two speakers that we got today, they're young individuals. And those are the people that it's going to help this labor movement move forward. They're going to do it as sight on scene. Uh, a lot of times we can send messages out through Twitter, Facebook, uh, and all the, the other ways. But guess what? At the bottom line is, do I trust A.J. Starling as an individual to tell me the truth? And as long as we can continue to always keep that human element involved in it, as Paige has said, we're we going to have to go to where people are. We're going to have to learn to get off our horses and, you know what, and go and say, it's a better way, it's a better life through organization. Paige, how does that resonate with you, hearing what he's saying about the importance of humanity in young folks? Oh, I totally agree with that. I think I said recently to someone, um, you know, workers aren't a pawn when we're trying to unionize. Um, because a lot of it does feel like a chess game. And I'm sure AJ and I know Anthony can both agree with this. Is, is Sometimes maybe we want to be like, okay, you need to do this next. And maybe they're not comfortable with that. And we have to listen to them. And uh, I'm, I agree with everything AJ said. Yeah, it's we have to remember who we're working with and that they're humans and that they're going to think about different thing, things differently than us. They're going to learn differently than us. They're going to work differently than us. And the workers should be leading all of this them and their families know what they need more than we're going to know what they need. And that's something else with restaurants and coffee shops. What are are your hopes for the workers of Tennessee? My hopes is to see them liberated. I hope to see them all with the power. I hope to see them seeing the profit that they're producing and to know their rights and to be able to fight for those rights and to get involved with organizing in a, in a sooner sooner manner. I hope to see them get more involved in these groups and see where they can get plugged in. 
Fern, what are your hopes for workers in Tennessee? My hope is that we see each other a little bit more clearly. Um, and then I like just an example, if we all walked around with our hourly wage um, written on our chest, I think that we would realize that people really close to us are struggling a lot more than than we would realize. We would realize that difference in class. We'd realize that different in daily life. Um, and I, I hope people could get fueled off of, you know, just like that awareness of each other and willingness to fight for each other. That would be a very interesting day if everybody walked around with their hourly wage yeah. on a T-shirt on their chest in this town. That'd be crazy. We'd that, have to be honest with ourselves. Yeah, that would be something downtown. Now, AJ, looking in, looking ahead to the fall, right to work is on the ballot, right? That's correct. What can we expect? Well, uh, it will be on the ballot along with uh, three other constitutional amendments. Uh, I think it will be right after the, the governor's uh, race, and it will be right on the ballot. We are going to fight uh, this uh, right-to-work amendment. We'll, we will have uh, a lot of information going out in the near future, and I mean real near future. Uh, we have our memberships uh, going. We've got other folks that are on the ground pushing to vote no on Amendment 1. Uh, and and w what we need to know about it is educating the general public. The word right to work, uh, you know, it was said earlier, it's such a misnomer. Hmm. And we've got a lot of education to do. And that's our effort to educate people. Because if this passes, it goes into the Constitution. And and it's a piece of legislation right now. And uh, it wasn't put in the Constitution when the forefathers written it. Mm -hmm. Now, Paige, you got 30 seconds. You know, what are your hopes for the future of labor organizing? Um, I hope to see it adapt with the people it's organizing. I love that. Fern? I just want to I, I want to double down on that, and I hope we, we learn how to, I don't know, that word mutual aid, or that phrase mutual aid. Mm -hmm. I want to see more of that. I want to see that done more strategically. Um, we're in a big fight together. So how can we do that more cohesively? That is the perfect way for us to do it. I want to I really appreciate having you all on here. Thanks to AJ Starling with the AFL-CIO, who was joined by Paige McKay with Rock Music City and Fern Welsh of Unemployed Workers United. Thanks to you all again for being on the show today. Now, before we go today, we wanted to come back to coffee. Coffee Black, specifically. It's a storefront in Memphis that Renata Henderson and her husband Bartholomew Jones opened back in 2020. They call themselves the Anti-Gentrification Coffee Club. Inside, well, it looks like your living room. There's a black couch, big yellow chair. The business is a celebration of the African roots of coffee and a reclamation of coffee in black culture. There's a slogan written on their cups. It reads, love black people like you love black coffee. As Renata told our intern, Doreen Schernecki, they decided that black people needed a coffee space like this by the community for the community. We have a lot of people in the community who are just like, we needed this, we love this. And specifically we have people even from outside of the community, black people who are just like, 
this is the type of space I was looking for where I can look around and see other people who look like me. I hear music, I smell incense, you know, I see pictures like it's not like this uh, whitewashed walls and silence and all of this, but I can actually be comfortable here. It actually feels like my living room. Black people specifically don't feel empowered to have that be a part of who they are and a part of what they do on a daily basis as, uh, as an homage to where it came from. My husband, he went to school in Chicago and when he was doing like his, his all-nighters, he would get like the darkest coffee they had or whatever. And so for him, he would go into these spaces and not see anybody else that looked like him or could relate to his experience. And so that's what started kind of the questions around Coffee Black. This was right after George Floyd happened and my husband posted the words, love black people like you love black coffee on his social media. People said, I would love to see this on a shirt. And he was like, okay, cool, we can do that. Who, who else would be interested in that? He put that on a shirt. I had a Cricut cutting machine. Uh, we got some blank shirts. And um, we said, okay, we're gonna try this. We were really close already with our neighborhood development corporation and they said, hey, we got a building for you guys. We didn't want to contribute to gentrification. Um, and so we said, well, I don't, we don't really want to do that. So the conversation became, if you guys don't do it, somebody who doesn't care will. And so we said, okay, we'll try it. It's going to be a club. It's not a, it's not a shop. We don't want anybody to feel like they can't come in here and get a coffee at any point. We have a first sip program for people who can't afford it, uh, that you can get your first sip free. And some people are on their 15th sip at this point, 75th sip, and it's still free because we don't want to hoard something that was meant to be shared as our own. That was a big thing for us, is making sure that as a community, we share it, because that's what coffee was meant to be. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, bottoms up, we're talking moonshine. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil E. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>